0: grab a Bible and turn with me to Psalm 139 this morning. Psalm 139. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some somewhere, hidden somewhere. Um, Larry's got them. If you need one, put your hand in the air. Larry would gladly bring one to you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and take that and use that. Um, You can have it. He's waving them around like Vanna White out here. (laughs) Looking good, Larry. Use that and... uh, yeah, like I said, that's our gift to you. So Psalm 139 is where we're going to go. We're going to look at the first six verses this morning. Uh, let me read these for us, and, uh, and then we'll dive in. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord... You know it all together. You hem me in, behind me, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me, for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Our, our boys started swim lessons this week. and Most of you know our kids, at least maybe the two older ones. You know the two older ones. We have three. Uh, Juliet is our, uh, our youngest. But the two boys started uh, swim lessons. If you're unfamiliar, Abel is the oldest uh, and Abel is a bit more reserved, uh, maybe you might even call him timid. He's He runs around here and he, at home he's, he's pretty boisterous, but when you get him in a social setting with peers, he kind of tends to shut down and turn inward a little bit. He started school this year and we were surprised to find out that he was a little more reserved than we even had thought. Uh, that's okay, that's fine. Uh, that was me at five year old. At five years old, I get it, and I'm, I'm a low functioning extrovert. Someone told me the other day that they were a high functioning introvert. I tipped the scale a little bit on the extrovert side, but I'm a very low functioning extrovert. I think that's probably the case we're into. This guess probably an occupational hazard. Whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Tev is our second. Many of you know Tev, and like you, I, if you know Tev, you're already smiling in the direction that I'm going with this. Uh, if Able is reserved, Tev makes up for it, and then some in the opposite direction. That's just that's just Tev. So I guess we're do, doing a good job. <laughs> I guess we as a family are doing a good job filling that weird pastor family thing, that stereotype. I don't know if that's really a stereotype, but in my mind it is, and if that's my role here, I give myself a solid B plus in the weird pastor family. Uh, <laughs> if that's a comfort to you all, I don't know. I uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're weird. So the boys started swim lessons and Abel immediately, he was the first one, he he entered this state of paralysis as swim lessons started. He he that'd be clear, that'd be clear, he's seen water before and even enjoyed it on what I would say to be as a high level. Seemed to me that he likes swimming he likes running around in the water and but as soon as swim lessons started something happened i think it's because of his personality he's bent totally understand his response because that was me at five but again the reality was he always he was last for every activity it took a while mentally prep to mentally prep to get into the pool and to do what his instructor was asking him he's really good at following instructions great kid following instructions wonderful always hears and processes and actually does what but, but just getting in and doing it is, is a pretty big barrier for him. Um, and by the end of the time, there was some relatively violent shaking and tears. And those subsided, and he appeared to be enjoying himself by the end of it. But it just took a little bit of time for him to, to get into it. Uh, and he's a sweet kid, and, and he thinks that uh, he had the time of his life. And I was like, oh, that's good. I, I feel like I'm, I'm the parent who can say, wow. He, he, he got up and he immediately went up to his instructor and he said, thank you so much. That was so much fun. And I was like, the instructor thinks he's crazy because the reality is he was on the side of the pool shaking violently and crying 90% of the time. But I said, towards the end, he, he, he seemed to, to get into it. He seemed to be a little bit better. Um, I'm sure his biggest teacher even thought that I coerced him into saying that, like, go up there and say thank you, kid. and But no, he did it with his own volition. Um, I thought maybe his instructor thought that he was violating, somehow violating the Geneva Convention by keeping him in the water, Um, but the reality is uh, Abel enjoyed it. Ted, on the other hand, had his second, his his second, or he went second in the swim lesson endeavor. And and so again, you probably know where I'm going with this. I don't want to give it too much away because I'm considering selling tickets. Uh, but he was the first in the pool, bull in the china shop, headed to the deep end without regard for life. Uh, Here's a list of potential offenses. I'm gonna give you a list of potential offenses. Climbing on his teacher, screaming at the top of his lungs, general misunderstandings of personal space, knocking objects out of his teacher's hands, disregarding pool depth, uh, hearing and retaining less than 20% of instructions, hitting the instructor of the other class with a pool noodle and public nudity. All of those things were things that that happened uh, throughout the course of his the course of his swim lesson. You all get it. I don't need to go on. Shoot first, ask questions later, that's his philosophy. He's three and he's ready to party. Why why am I talking about this? Why am I talking about this? What does it have to do with Psalm 139? Well, I think my two boys are a pretty solid representation of in distinct ways, many, many ways that we as all of a people default to. Um, And so they make good examples, and thank you, God, for giving me sermon illustrations through my children. But we have maybe we default to probably two different sort of sets of personality types and sets of, and this might be a little reductionistic, but I don't think so. I think in reality, many of us are this way. A lot of us are prone to either self-examination or we're prone to action. We're prone to think a little bit too much about what's going around, on and around, and I know many of that's the case for you, and some of you are prone to just acting. Again, shoot first and ask questions later. And, uh, uh, and so as I meditated on a few passages of scripture, I came to find that the Bible thinks about both types of people. Both types of people. And then I noticed the idea of assurance of salvation has popped up a lot in the last few weeks, and my sermon prep are just discussions that I've had with, with you all. What I mean by assurance of salvation is that we have a clear answer to the question, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm saved? That's a question that we need to ask ourselves and grapple with. As a result of the truth of the gospel impacting my life, what is it uh, or how is it that I know that I'm saved? I read this quote then this week by Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century American theologian for his book Religious Affections. He says this, it is not God's design that men should obtain assurance in any other way than by mortifying corruption, increasing in grace, and obtaining the lively exercises of it. And although self-examination to be a great duty uh, great be a, great of, uh, a duty of great use, excuse me, and importance and by no means to be neglected, yet it is not the principal means by which the saints do get satisfaction of their good estate. Assurance is not to be obtained so much by self-examination as by action. The Apostle Paul sought assurance chiefly in this way. He obtained assurance of winning the prize more than running, by, by, more by running than considering. Okay, so 18th century language there. If that didn't land on your ears properly, that's no problem. Mortifying corruption just means killing sin, uh, setting it aside, identifying sin in your life into repenting and turning from it, increasing in grace and obtaining the lively exercises of it. That's a cool thing to say. He means that we have the strength and would discipline ourselves to, to read our Bibles, to pray, to engage in fellowship. Uh, And when we notice what he's saying here, it all kind of begins to make sense when we think about it. We should examine ourselves, but to do so without action will never result in growth of love for God and certainly won't bring about a a truth of our identity in Him. So in Philippians 3, 13-14, which I think Edwards is referring to here, Paul writes, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but the but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does Paul want to make his own? Back in verse 11, the resurrection from the dead. Fitting because we just came out of Resurrection Sunday Easter last week. And what Paul isn't saying is that he worked to attain his salvation, but dedicated his whole life to prove the certainty of participation in the resurrection of Jesus. And then he says he doesn't consider, but he acts. He doesn't consider, but he acts. Now, if you're bent towards acting quickly or putting self-examination on hold, you don't have an advantage here. That's not what's being said. You don't have an advantage here. Uh, but uh, but the reality is, trust me, we'll, we'll get to that, but the reality is you're bent towards self-examination. This truth doesn't mean that you're a step behind either. Rather, our text this morning speaks to that situation. That's kind of where we want to focus. If you find yourself this morning as a self-examiner, or if you find yourself as someone who is an action first person, but also know that there are a lot of people around you who examine and are introspective a lot, uh, this hopefully will be helpful for you. So again, Psalm 139. Go back there, look down at the page with me. These six verses, Psalm 139, 1 through 6, is what we are going to spend most of our time on this morning. So this is a psalm of David, uh, and it's much longer than this. It's 24 verses total, but we're just taking the first six. It's much longer, uh, and it's a psalm of David, and it's an important one for a couple of reasons. And again, maybe you're a self-examiner, one who tends to process and reprocess information and interactions a lot over and over and over again. And if that's your bent, not bad, but if it, made, it must make some serious considerations, especially regarding how you think about your position before God. That's not you. That's okay. do understand if you're quick to act. There are those here. And if we're going to live together in community and engage one another with regularity and relationship, then these things must be on our mind. Because there's nothing more frustrating as someone who's a self-examiner like me watching someone who's quick to shoot and ask questions later and i'm sure for people who are prone to action first it's nothing, there's nothing more serious or mo- nothing more frustrating than someone who sits still and stands in the one position and won't move off of it until they've they've processed that internally over and over and over again so these are care issues if we're called to love our neighbor and we are we are we are called to love our neighbor we must take time to recognize how our neighbor thinks and about how he or she sees the world We'll fail to love our neighbor if we think that everyone is like us or should be like us. Which is like really one of the biggest problems in our world is that we just think that people should be like us or that they that they need to be like us. And we're pretty prideful people if we think that's the case. So God created people in his image, and so what we need to do is stop trying to make people into ours. If God created people into his image, then what we need to do is stop trying to make people into ours. So, Psalm 139 gives us three thoughts about maybe the person who's a little bit more prone to self-examination. Three thoughts. First thought is this. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Second thought is this. God is our source of assurance. Uh, And finally, our pursuit of the knowledge of God is never finished. Our pursuit of the knowledge of God is never finished. Okay? Let's take that first one. God knows us better than we know ourselves. So the text starts out clearly, right? Look at verse 1 with me. He says, "O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. Uh, Our self-examinations do not yield the results of God's examination of us. Let me say that again. Our self-examinations do not yield the results that God's examination of us does. So I picked up this book this week uh, called *Experiencing the Trinity* by Joe Thorne. Um, the book is just 50 meditations on the Trinity that Thorn wrote during a period of this debilitating doubt that he found himself in. He came to the hands of his came to the hands of his pastor. He came to the hands of ministry burnout. And Thorne writes this in the introduction. He says. For the first time in my life, I was the weakest man that I knew. I was truly frail. This led me to cry out to the Lord and to preach to myself more than any other time. Yet the relief was often slow and coming. I would pour over passages of Scripture and lie face down, waiting for God to refresh my heart, assure my soul, and lift my head. Sometimes I was blessed with the peace. Other times I, I, left, uh, I was left in a condition... It was as if I were walking in darkness and afraid of falling off a cliff. And although the promise of light was given, I was still waiting for it to break through the night. So that's the position, that's the mindset that he's in when he writes this book called Experiencing the Trinity. And one of the meditations is simply called He Knows. Psalm 139.1 is the text he references, and Thor writes this, about, writes this to himself. One of the earliest truths you learned about God was that he knows everything, right? That's one of the earliest things we learn about God, that he's omniscient. He knows all things that are and all things that are possible. He is unlimited in his knowledge, and yet there is a profound gospel truth you seem to forget concerning God's knowledge. It is a truth that can steady your soul in days of turbulence and trouble. The fact that he knows all things means that he knows you. The fact that he knows all things means that he knows you. Thorne then goes on and he says, this is actually one of your greatest desires. This is actually one of your greatest desires. You want to be truly known, to be understood, to be seen for what you are in all your ugliness and beauty. God the Father knows you like this. This is what Psalm 139.1 communicates. This is what Psalm 139.1 communicates. Full disclosure, I said that I'm like my son, Abel, so I'm a heavy self-examiner, so I understand this. I'll have interactions with some of you or others outside of this body also, and I I worry about that. Ever worry about an interaction that you had with someone? Something that might seem like, I don't know if that conversation really went all that well. And I think to myself, was I clear? Did I say something stupid or make sense, or was I helpful? These people think I'm a total loser. And then, honestly, I have to repent. I have to repent. And sometimes I have to go to that person and say, I care more about what you think than what God thinks about me. I've cared more about your reactions in a lot of ways to something that something I've said or something that's happened than the fact that God has what David communicates to us in Psalm 139.1, that God has searched me and known me. And I think that is what Thorne is saying when he says he wants to be seen for what he is in all his ugliness and beauty. My self examination personally kicks up all of this dust of uncertainty in my mind. And then I soul and I look to people to help me make all that dust settle, but that's not their job. My wife gets thrown into this role a lot. She gets thrown into that role a lot. And make the dust of my uncertainty, of my interactions with people. One of the first questions I'll ask her today, guaranteed, probably my flesh, is well, she's not here. But I was like, usually, how's the sermon? I want positive feedback. I'm like, well, you know, it wasn't your best. (laughs) But again, that's not her job. What she's promised me is that she'll stick by me in sickness and health until death does its part, right? She doesn't promise what God promises here that she's searched me and known me. That's not her role. And so, friends, God knows you better than you know yourself. That's the truth that's communicated here. Don't be paralyzed by your self-examination. If you're one of those people who heavily self-examines, don't be paralyzed by that. Rather than ask yourself, who is this God who knows me? And we talk about this a lot. That's what the Bible is about. The Bible is about knowing God. That's why the Bible is given to us, so that we can know God and we can understand who He is. He's the God that doesn't just know me, but He knows everything. He knows when you sit down and when you rise, if you go on into verse 2, right? You know, when I sit down and when I rise, he's the God who discerns our thoughts from afar. He searches out the places that I go and when I lie down in my bed. He's acquainted with all of my ways. This is the God that knows me. He knows the words that are going to come out of my mouth before I speak them. And Once we ask the question, who is this God who knows me? When we ask this question, then we can ask, what does that make me? What does it make me? It makes me known. I know that's kind of like a circular argument, but it makes me known. We are known. You are known. When you feel lonely, you are known. When you feel like the close, closest to you don't understand what you're going through, you are known. When you feel like things are heaped on you, piled out so high that you can't see out, you are known. Who are you? You are known. The creator of the universe knows you. And because he knows you, he knows exactly what you need. Creator of the universe knows exactly what you need. What what do you need? You need more of him. You need more of him. He is your well, he is your cistern, he is your source of life. He is your life. He said, I want you to find all you are in me. It's all stop at nothing short of the sacrifice of my son to ensure that I can give you all of me. And friends, if your desire is to be known, which I think it is, if your desire is to be known, just understand there's only one place that you can go, the God who knows you. So have you trusted him? Have you turned from your sins? Are you struggling with that if you have? Do you know what the heart of your sin is? It's like the heart of our sin. It's that we think that we can pursue and find satisfaction in something other than God himself. That is is what lies at the heart of our sin. We think somehow that the creator of the universe, the God of the universe has told us, you can find satisfaction in no place but me. But then in our pridefulness, we say, we can find satisfaction somewhere else. No problem. No problem. We'll find it somewhere else. But that's not what God created us for. That's not God, what God created for us for. People sa- seek satisfaction in all sorts of things. Or maybe this is you this morning. Maybe you think you can find satisfaction in your work. So you pour yourself into long hours and sleep little and ignore your family. Or Maybe you think you can find satisfaction in your sexuality. So you click through to that porn site because it offers instant gratification that you desire. Or maybe you think that you can find satisfaction in your family. So you put your kids on a pedestal and live like they have total priority. Or maybe you think you can find satisfaction in others' good opinion to you. So you never say no. We're always trying to make people happy. And none of these things will yield true satisfaction. None of these things will yield true satisfaction. Maybe a temporary spike in dopamine. But nothing much beyond that. You are created to be known by your God. And you are known by your God. Responding to that in faith means that you seek your satisfaction only in Him. Exclusively in Him. And the God who knows you. You eat the bread of life. You drink the living water. You plant yourself in God's word and in prayer. You surround yourself with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Not to be your source of satisfaction. Not to be your source of satisfaction. But to be known by them Ultimately but brothers and sisters who can point you to the true source of satisfaction and the one who knows you totally. That's why we want to be together. Because we want to point each other to the one who knows us. The one who knows us entirely. God knows us better than we know ourselves. So the second thing that we see in Psalm 139, if you go down to verse 5, so first thing, those first four verses, we see that God knows us better than we know ourselves. The second thing is this that God is our source of assurance. God is our source of assurance. Look at verse 5 with me. David writes, You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. What is David saying? I I don't view David as a seamstress, but this is like a a warrior and a poet, but not not a seamstress, but he chooses to use this. He's saying that the God who knows you, also brings you comfort of the assurance of salvation. And these two, these two ideas are intimately tied together. True comfort only comes from true assurance. Friends, we don't have comfort outside of assurance in Christ. A true assurance that only comes from God. If you're, again, if you're a self-examiner, if you're someone who turns inward and is very introspective in your day-to-day and hope to find assurance by moving inward, finding some corner inside of you that's going to provide this level of assurance for you, you will walk away with no assurance. If you do find what appears to be assurance, it's false assurance, because you're relying on yourself and what's going on inside of you rather than God. My self-examination, and I'm sure that some of you uh, come from traditions of the church where it's taught that you cannot have assurance of salvation. I understand, I understand that. Maybe you here this morning and you believe that, that you can't have any type of assurance of salvation, and in my self-examination, oftentimes I come to that conclusion also. But let me appeal to you from verse 5 this morning. David says, about God, you hand me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. I don't know, I don't know, if, if, you, if you don't feel like, or you don't think that you can have assurance I'm not quite sure why David would have written verse 5 God hems us in and he lays his hand upon us, God knows what he's getting into when he does that, he's not saying oh man I really need to undo this stitch work because I didn't really know what this person's true nature is no, verses 1 through 4 says he knows us, he knows everything about us there's no corner of us that he doesn't know He's searching us. He's knowing us. And he does that better than we do for ourselves. And it's the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of the Son was sufficient for us. There's not a sinful corner of your life that God isn't going to stumble upon or that God is going to stumble upon later and say, to, Oh, I didn't see that. I didn't see that coming. He's the God of the universe. He knows everything. So you're going to stumble upon something later in your life and say, well, I didn't know that he or she was really that bad. I guess I didn't consider that when I crushed my son. Tear out the stitches. This is a primitive hemming in. Friends, you are hemmed in. Be assured that if you have turned from your sin and trusted Jesus and you see the fruit of the gospel and of the spirit in your life, you are hemmed in. Does this mean that you won't have moments or extended periods of doubt or turmoil or suffering? No. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that it doesn't depend on you. Friends, that's a freeing thought. This doesn't depend on you. It's not about you. It is God who hems you in, you don't hem yourself in. When you apply the truth of God's word and what he says about who he is and what he's done for us in Christ Jesus, and As I read from Joe Thorne's book earlier about the conclusion of the season in doubt and internal turmoil, he writes this. He says, the power of God's word is not seen in the immediacy of its work. The power of God's word is not seen in the immediacy of its work. This might be an extended period for you. It might be an extended period where you're into turmoil and you're into suffering and you're into doubt. But Thornton goes on, he says, Preaching God's word to yourself is not necessarily a quick fix for your sorrows and suffering. At times, God will delay granting you relief in order to draw you closer to him. He might want to teach you just how helpless you really are and how all-sufficient he really is. Sometimes God will allow you to suffer for a season to test and strengthen your faith. I am thankful that I've learned that relief is easy when life is easy. But when life is confusing and painful, faith will prove itself to either be rooted in Jesus Christ or resting on religious sentiments. Friends, is your faith rooted in Jesus Christ or is it resting on religious sentiments? This is a question that we must ask ourselves coming out of this text. Is our, is our faith rooted in Jesus Christ and the understanding that in Him, God has hemmed us in before and behind or is it resting on something that we do? Showing up for church or giving or some type of some type of outward expression that we think that ultimately will earn us something. The reality is that's opposed to the gospel. Our, our understanding, our faith must be rooted, what we believe to be true must be rooted in Jesus Christ himself and not in religious sentiments. So again, second It is God who is the source, is our source of assurance. It is God who is our source of assurance. Finally, then, verse six. David writes, "Such knowledge is too wonderful for me; it is high, I cannot attain it." So finally, then, our pursuit of the knowledge of God is never finished. Knowing someone has become increasingly flimsy, an increasingly flimsy idea in our world. Uh, because probably of social media or where we can get other sources of information about people around us. was out of location this week. I won't disclose the location. I was out of location this week and someone started talking to me and my children had never seen this person before in my life. Somehow they knew me from social media or something like that. It was very strange. And they knew my kids' names and I was like, this is strange. They felt like they knew me. I didn't feel threatened or anything, but they felt like they knew me because they had brushed up across my Facebook profile or Instagram or something. Our, the idea of knowing someone has become increasingly flimsy in our world. And knowing someone really isn't knowing them. It's just knowing about them. I know a lot of things about you in this room because of social media that we've never talked about. This is weird. David says here that the knowledge of God who entirely knows him is too wonderful for him. He knows it's true, but it's a pretty big thing to wrap his mind around. This is a God who doesn't just know about you. He knows you. He knows you on an intimate level. He's not just clicking through your Facebook profile. He's a God who is all knowing. He's created you. Friends, we are not all knowing. We are not all knowing. We are far from it. Although we often act like we know a lot of things. And God knows everything about us, but we're called to know God. That's an ongoing process that's never completed. Since we are finite, we'll never stop learning about our infinite God. But the call in our life is to know Him, to know an all-knowing God. So, we must make time for His Word. If this is the primary way that He's chosen to communicate the truth about who He is to us, then we must make time for His Word throughout the course of our week. We'll never stop beating the drum. If you're sick of me hearing me say this, get used to it. God has given you what you need to know about him right here. It's his word. We leave it on ourself or we leave it on our coffee table because we don't believe that it contains information about the God of the universe. We fail to pick it up because we recognize that it's not about us or we, we think that it's not about us or that it is about us. And when we go to it and when we don't see anything immediately that's going to help us, we kind of set it down and move past it. But we get to know the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the one, the true and living God who is our heavenly Father because of the fact that he stopped at nothing to bring us back to him. So what? Just make time for his word. The call on our life is to know the all-knowing God. So make time for his word, and then make time for his people. Make time for his people. God frequently uses the lives of others to spur on our growth and our development and our knowledge of Him in our lives. So we emphasize discipleship relationships because it's our earnest desire for you to know God. And one of the most integral ways that that happens throughout the course of our week is meeting with other people who are pointing us to the all-knowing God, the source of our life, the creator of the universe. And if we ignore the other people sitting in this room, if we don't know anyone, if we don't ask questions about spiritual health, we don't care about spiritual health or well-being of others, we can't expect to grow in our knowledge of God. God created us for relationship. God himself has existed in relationship for all of eternity. And perfect relationship with himself, the, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so God created us in His image, and therefore we are created for relationship, both with Him and with others, and not just relationships based on similar likes or dislikes or age brackets, but relationships that are rooted in Him. And these are the fundamentals of a Christian life. These are the fundamentals of the Christian life. If you're not practicing these things, you're saying you're an NBA player, but you can't dribble or throw a pass. That's what it boils down to. And so our pursuit of the knowledge of God is never finished. We must dedicate ourselves fully to it by making time for his word, by making time for his people. Our pursuit of the knowledge of God is never finished. So these three things, right? These three things. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God is our source of assurance. And our pursuit of the knowledge of God is never finished. So in conclusion this morning, I'm going to ask you this question. Are you self-examiner? Or do you know one? Does anyone not know a self examiner? Probably not. You don't have to raise your hand. God has examined you. This psalm communicates to us that God has searched us and He's known us. And any self searching on our part will not lead to our assurance of our status in Him. Rather, apply the truth of who He is to yourself. He is the one who knows all things, and therefore He knows you by pursuing Him through His Word. And by seeking out other believers who can build into you and other believers that, uh, that, that, that you can build into yourself. And there's one reason that we wouldn't do this. There's one reason why we wouldn't give ourselves to this. Is, be, is pride. It's pride. We don't want to admit that someone knows more than we do. We don't want to admit that maybe we're not really sure what's going on. Or we're using the correct filter in our lives. Maybe we don't want to admit that we don't have it all together. And allowing others to build into our life and opening our lives up to others so that we can learn is an expression of humility. It is an expression of humility to live together in relationship with one another, seeking to bear the image of God or seeking to picture who God is in our lives. Back to Joe Thorne. I mentioned him a couple of times. A man named David played a significant role in moving him past his sorrows and suffering. He was in a place of extreme frustration and extreme turmoil. And he met this man named David. And he helped him move beyond, gave him some resources. He pointed him to God's Word. He cared for him, he prayed for him. And is that you this morning? Maybe God is calling you to serve someone by gently pointing them to Jesus in the midst of suffering. Would you know? Would you know if he was? Would you know if someone around you this morning is suffering? Would you have an understanding? Would you be too caught caught up in your work or your hobbies or your money or your self-examination to notice? Would you be concerned that if that person truly knew you, they would think you to be silly or foolish or confusing or unhelpful? Children of God, those who apply the truth that they are searched and known by God, don't worry about these things. They don't. Their worth, their identity, does not flow from the opinions of those who they're engaged with. It flows from an all-knowing God, who has searched them and known them. It doesn't come from ultimately from the affirmation of people, but the affirmation of God. This week, Mark and I had uh, the ability to spend some time with some pastors in town praying um, and we did so, it was a really rich time. We had a great time just singing together some hymns and then praying. And my mind immediately went to, uh, there is a fountain filled with blood. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that That hymn. It was by a man named William Cowper. And the first vo- verse goes like this, and if you think I'm going to sing it, you're wrong. The first verse goes like this. It says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all of their guilty stains. Cowper wrote this. Cowper was a, a self-examiner. He was a man who battled extreme anxiety and depression throughout his entire life. His In his sorrow, he attempted suicide more than one occasion. And no doubt, he lived in the, in the 19th century, but if he had lived in the 21st, it would have been clear that he was depressed and suffered most likely from several other mental illnesses. But he wrote about a serious bout with depression in seventeen fifty two, he said, did I say nineteenth century I eighteenth? Mean I was struck with such a dejection of spirits, as none but those who as none but they who have felt the same can have at least conception of. Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. I presently lost all relish for those studies to which before I had been closely attached. The classics had no longer any charm for me. I had need of something more than salutary than amusement. But I had not one to direct me where to find it. About a decade later, Cowper met and struck up a friendship with a man named John Newton. You know John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton, probably best known for writing Amazing Grace, was described has been described like this. We should know Newton... We should also know him as one of the healthiest, happiest pastors in the 18th century. People said that other pastors were respected by their people, but Newton was loved. And Newton invited Cowper to write a hymnal with him in 1769, and it was published a decade later. There is a fountain filled with blood was part of that work. And it's not just Cowper's artistry that drove him to write Plunged Beneath the Flood." It's not just Cowper's artistry that that drove him to write Plunge Beneath That Flood, but a realization that he had plunged into despair and doubt and depression. And even though it would continue to happen for the rest of his life, it was the blood of Jesus that he needed. There's not introspection. As with the faithfulness of Newton, Cowper grew in knowledge that he was known by God. Friends, this morning, if you're in Christ, you've been plunged beneath that flood. You've been washed clean. You've lost all your guilty stains. You have a God who has searched you and known you, like David says in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have a God who, with His blood, with the blood of His Son, has covered your sin and given you the righteousness uh, that you can call your own so that you might know Him. Friends, if you're a self-examiner you know a self-examiner, this is the truth that you need to rest in. You have been searched, and you have been known. God has hemmed you in. Regardless of his findings, he has hemmed you in. He has laid his hand upon you, his hand of comfort. So this one is mine. Socrates said, know thyself. But to you, friends, first, know thy God. He knows you. Let's pray.